Hello, welcome to the Grace Top Podcast. This is your host, Joshua Hester. We're going to be talking about a topic that I think is important, but kind of controversial. And it's the idea of Armageddon or the end of the world, right? Something that we hear about a lot uh, from different sources. It's something you do hear about a lot, but in the Bible, it's actually covered specifically. We have ideas and concepts that give us kind of a framework, a way to process this whole idea of the end of the world, this battle at the end of time. And I think a good place to start is just to kind of give us some context. So when we look at the world, it could have gone one of two ways from the time of Jesus. I mean, Jesus lived 2,000 years ago, and it could have been that humanity would have just gotten better and better and better and more and more intelligent, more and more perfect. Or it could have been that humanity would have kind of self-destructed, kind of fallen apart. And in some ways, it may have looked like it was going to do that for almost a thousand years during the dark ages in a lot of ways, but culture kept moving forward and things kept changing. So in one sense, we could say that the world did has gotten better, right? Uh, the world is getting better in knowledge, in technology, in wealth, in medicine. There's a lot of ways that it's arguable, I think, that life has gotten better. I mean, here I am recording something from my house in air conditioning, sitting on a, a soft chair with a computer, right? It's like, I'm not curious... Uh, about what tomorrow will bring, really. I'm pretty sure I'll have food. I'm pretty sure the electricity will work. And although the world might fall apart and, and there are definitely horrible things happening in the world, I don't want to under underplay that. A lot of these things have always been happening. And in many, like to a great degree, these things aren't as prevalent as they used to be. They don't control our everyday lives for a lot of us. So in especially in sections of the world, uh, in more developed parts of the world, you could there's a strong case to be made that the world has gotten better. And a lot of that's due to science and knowledge, just that we have a way of recording and uh, searching for and sharing knowledge thousands of ways that the world didn't have even 100, 200 years ago. And so this development of, of communication, of information, of knowledge has, has changed our lives drastically and mostly for the better. There's actually a quote that I wanted to share. It's from Charles Hughes uh, at the Manhattan Institute. He said this, most people are unaware that extreme poverty has been declining over time despite its drastic reduction. In a recent survey, only 5% of Americans knew that global extreme poverty had almost halved in the past 20 years. Two thirds of respondents incorrectly thought that it had doubled, doubled over that period. In other words, most people don't realize that poverty and similar types of, of horrible issues are getting better and better. And even though it's true, we just don't see it. We don't notice it. We think that this is somehow how people were living 200 years ago and that things are just getting worse and worse. But in a lot of ways, that's just not the case. And I think it's important to notice that when we think about the end of the world and, and where the world today is going, it's important for us to see that in a, in a very real sense, the world is getting better. I think it's also reasonable to say that in a very real sense, the world is getting worse. Um, I think you, especially let, let's take the United States, which is where I'm from, or uh, you could do England or Germany. A lot of these countries that are very well developed, where it's the strongest case to say that the world is getting better, 
the strongest case can also be made that the world is getting worse. And I want to share a quote from you from the Kaiser Family Foundation. It says this, nearly half a million lives were lost to suicide from 2010 to 2020. During the same period, the suicide death rate increased by 12%. And as of 2009, the number of suicides outnumbered those caused by motor vehicle accidents. So even in 2009, there were more people dying from suicide than in car accidents. But that time, that number has gotten 12% worse in the past 10 years, from 2010 to 2020. You see, it's weird. It's like as, as technology gets better, it's like the very fabric of humanity ourselves, our familial fabric, our communal fabric, our national fabric seems to be deteriorating. And you find that a lot of people who maybe a hundred years ago who would have been working hard and would have been taking care of themselves and, and, and maybe in a different context may have done better, find themselves in this world of knowledge overload of opportunity overload, of a lack of a culture where where it's hard to know who you are, where you don't have a definite position, where you don't know what your culture is. It, it's like all of these options, all of this mass level of information is just too much. And we see that everywhere. So in one sense, like we said before, the world is getting better, but that same level of getting better, it, it's almost like it's kind of drying out the bones of humanity. And we seek suicide or drugs or other things to numb ourselves from the reality of our situation, even though it's arguable that physically we're doing better. And so physical reality isn't the only reality, right? And spiritual, emotional, psychological reality is super important. And a lot of these places that are supposedly better are only better physically, are only better when you look at the amount of money they're, they're, you know, the amount of income they receive. But when you look at how they are emotionally and spiritually, it's not better. And so that's, that's an important concept, you know, context to find ourselves in, that there is this battle, right? And it's interesting, when you look at the Bible, you know, Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago. And so you might think that what he says isn't going to be relevant. But I want to share a, a story uh, with you from the Bible. It's from Matthew 24. Jesus, this was near the end of his life, right? Before, uh, kind of near the time when he was going to be put on the cross and die for the world. Um, it says in Matthew 24, verse three, I want to share this story. It says, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, just a little pause. Jesus had just told them that things were going to get worse and that the world was going to fall apart basically. And so they're curious, like, okay, when is this going to happen? And this is what Jesus said. Jesus answered them. He says, see that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying that I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars and see that you are not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. And, when me and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Okay, so look, look, like, listen to this. It, it doesn't sound good, right? So I want to go back a little bit. Jesus is answering the question of like, okay, when are all these bad things going to happen? And in verse five, he says, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ and they will lead many astray. You see the word Christ is just the word for Messiah, the promised one, the one who would come and save the world. And 
let me ask you a question. How often do you see some random commercial and maybe directly or indirectly, like let's say it's a little less direct. So it's some, like, let's say it's a beer commercial and it shows you a video of like this group of people having a great time. It's just like the best time they've ever experienced having a party. They're one, you know, they can't even believe how much fun they're having, right? Boom, their, their beer comes up, right? And they, the implication is that this beer is going to just make your life the dream that you've always wanted it to be. This is kind of hooking onto that human need for something more for something meaningful, for something profound, right? In in a sense, it's a fake Messiah. It's a fake savior that's going to fill your life with meaning. But in very more direct ways, there have been literal people saying that they're Messiah, right? Whether it's some cult leader or whether it's some doctor promising a new pill is going to give us eternal life or, or going to take away our wrinkles or going to... There's all this promise that they're going to come up and they're going to replace our need for God and our need for something more in this world. And so it's just a constant theme. And and the point is that Jesus 2,000 years ago was very well aware of the reality that humans are going to keep giving false promises about how we're going to be saved. And then look at the next verse, the next section, the next thing he says. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginning of birth pains. So another thing that Jesus knew would happen is that his ministry, Jesus' ministry as the Messiah to save the world, what he was not promising was that once he died, all of a sudden, all of the difficulties of life were going to go away. That somehow evil people were going to just boop, disappear, and there would be no more evil. That's not what Jesus promised. He knew, right? He knew that things were going to get wor worse in a very real way. And then he said that there would be famines and earthquakes in various places. So not only did he know that humans would keep being evil, right? But also that the world would keep being unsafe, right? Jesus was not promising some sort of escape from the reality of life, but he did prepare his people to know that there will be these signs at the end of time and that these signs were going to get worse and worse and worse. And so as they get worse and worse, it's it's kind of like an arrow pointing us to the fact that God will send the Messiah again. Christians call this the second coming, right? That Jesus will come in the clouds and save his people. That this evil, this suffering, this sin that humanity began all the way back in the garden, the destruction of this world, and what I mean by destruction of this world, the consistent destruction of this world that we do to the world, to ourselves, to each other, this process would continue. And then verse 9, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. You know, it's really interesting that throughout Christian history, this has been the case that when Christians stand up for the truth, when people, not even just Christians, when humans who are aware of the right, who have been led by God to stand up for the right, when they stand up for the right, it is often the case that those who want to hold on to their evil ways will then betray those who are standing up for the right and will try to kill them and try to destroy them. And so this whole concept of the end of the world is in a context where Jesus knew that things would get worse in a very real sense up until the end of time. But that even though things are going to get worse, God has a plan.
it's interesting right now in the United States, we are very aware of the horrible things happening in Ukraine and Russia. That Russia is trying to take over Ukraine. There's war. People are dying. It, it reminds us of the Cold War that went on for years, and that happened because of World War II. And in World War II was finally when people got to the place where we realized that we had the capability of destroying ourselves. And for 30 years or more after World War II, no, 30 years, well, more like 60 years, after World War II, there was this Cold War for 50 or 60 years that the United States and Russia were kind of quietly fighting because we were aware that if we actually fought, we could destroy ourselves. And then now in with Russia and Ukraine, there's this kind of impending sense that if we, if we really tick off Russia, they might throw a nuke our way. And so there's this realize, realization that, yes, humanity has gotten better. Our technology has made things better, but in a very real way. Not only is the stress destroying the bones of humanity, like I, I like to say, it's sucking our, our bones dry, uh, familially and communally and na nationally, but it's also on a, on a global level, creating a situation where we could easily cause so much devastation that it is beyond anything that we as human, hu humanity have even imagined. And so, yes, we, we have this sense that we have power and we can use that same ability for nuclear war is that ability that gives us nuclear power. But the problem is that the more power you give to broken humans, the more quickly we are, are, tut are, are, are sprinting towards destruction, right? And it's because of the issue of the human heart. And Jesus told us that, that things would get worse and worse and worse up until the end of time because humans are still evil. And it's actually the case that I don't know if you've ever stood up against somebody. I, I did this with a family member, and I'm not going to share too many details, but I kind of called them out for their, their stuff, right? And when I called them out, they, instead of admitting it, they decided to just double down, right? They, they justified their actions. They justified their attitude. And it actually p plummeted them farther into their issue because they had an opportunity to turn away from that thing or to turn towards that thing. And so when I called them out, they made a choice, and that choice led to further destruction and, and, and evil, right? Because they weren't willing to let it go. So they became more of it. I think in a very real way, that's what Jesus did, right, for each of us as individuals. And that's what he does in our own lives. Like the, the righteous, as it is lifted up, the goodness, as it is lifted up, it causes this distinction between what is good and evil. It makes it a very, a very clear line. You can see more clearly and not always perfectly. And I, and I don't want to oversimplify reality, but when, when you see goodness, you recognize it. And so that by, by its nature kind of distinguishes itself from evil, or you could say light distinguishes itself from darkness. And so then those who want darkness can no longer hide in this vague, concept of, oh, maybe I'm a good person. No, no, no. Comparing yourself to Jesus will show you that you need him to change your heart, right? And so if you refuse to do that, you're actually choosing the darkness. You're kind of giving yourself up more over to it fully, right? So the question is like, how do we get in the situation where humans are this type of creature that our tendency, our bentness is towards sin, right? And of course, I think most of you have probably heard of the story of Adam and Eve, right? That Adam and Eve had basically a voting booth in the Garden of Eden. And that voting booth was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they chose, oversimplified version is, Satan said to them through the serpent, 
God is lying to you. If you trust me and don't trust him, if you make yourself king instead of trusting the king of the universe, you can be like God. Because of the choice of Adam and Eve, we as humans have this same tendency to say, yeah, I know I can see pretty clearly what's right here, but I'm pretty sure I can make a better way. I'm pretty sure that God's way isn't actually what's best. So I'm going to I'm going to work this out. We're going to see what we can do, and I'm going to make a better option, right? There's a story in Matthew 13, and it's uh, about seed, right? It's I'm actually currently doing this podcast in Iowa, right? A lot of corn, uh, a lot of uh, wheat, a lot of different plants that are growing. Uh, if you're in California, right, there's these orchard grow. And we plant seeds, and we have to realize that the seeds you plant are the things that are going to grow. But Jesus points out a very specific thing. So I'm going to share this story. Tell me what you think. It says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was asleep, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and slipped away. When the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? The response is, an enemy did this. So the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he said, if you pull the weeds now, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat into my barn. Sometimes we wonder, why is it, and, he, and, and this is kind of my takeaway from the story, right? Like sometimes we wonder, why is it that God doesn't just, boom, destroy everybody, boom, and then make everything right again? And part of the reason, there's a, there's a lot of answers to that question, right? But like humanity has this bentness, this tendency for sin, and everybody needs an opportunity to choose for God. And the universe who has, and the rest of humanity and the angels and the beings outside of, of our knowledge, right? And these things we can talk about some other time, you know, in biblical knowledge, right? Like there is these, there are other beings outside of the world. You see them in Job and you see them mentioned in other books of the Bible as well, like especially in Revelation. There are other beings and everyone's looking in to see how God deals with the sin problem. And part of it is that we need to be able to see that what Satan said, that, oh, humanity can be its own God and that'll be okay. That that lie, we need to see that it actually is a lie. That sin is actually sinful because I don't know about you, but there's a lot of sins that at first glance, they kind of seem like an awesome idea, right? They kind of seem fun, right? So uh, what's a good one? Let's say lying, right? And I think you all know that we all know pretty inherently that lying is wrong, but we don't know it's wrong in the sense that it is actually destructive to the nature of reality, right? That we're, that, that it is actually causing death and it ruins relationships. So like when you're a kid and you discover that you can lie, it kind of feels like a get out of jail free card, right? Like, oh no, I didn't do that thing, mom, that you're going to get mad at me for. And it feels like you can get away. But the problem is you're you're actually ruining your relationship with those people because you're willing to distort reality and manipulate people. And how can someone trust what you are saying and doing if you're willing to just invent reality, right? We're no longer on the same page and you're creating a, a barrier between us. So that's just a very practical way in which you could say, okay, sin doesn't, that sin of lying doesn't seem at first to be wrong, but as you act it out, not only does it hurt relationships, but it hurts your very ability to recognize reality. 
right? You've heard the phrase of people lying to themselves because when you lie to yourself long enough, whole nations can do this. When we lie to ourselves long enough, we can actually make ourselves believe that something that is destructive and horrible is good or okay, right? And I mentioned World War II before, like the Nazis and the rest, by the way, the rest of the, the German nation pretty much had convinced themselves that what they were doing was actually good, right? By a series of small lies, Hitler and the other leaders of the Nazi party were able to manipulate an entire people into believing that murdering Jews and gays and blacks and whatever other group they wanted to find, that murdering these people was actually a good, right? And so it's really amazing when you see how, okay, you need to let the wheat, like this story here, right? The, the God had planted good seed. He wanted good things. But an enemy, an enemy who questioned God's rule, who questioned his, his authority, sowed seeds of doubt. And these seeds need to be seen for their fruit, need to be seen in their full maturity. Like what happens if you remove a God of love from his throne in the, in the life of individuals and nations? Is this really what we want? So that when finally, and you'll notice it says that, I'll read verse 29. No, like the servants asked, do you want us to pull, go and pull up these weeds? No, he said, if you pull the weeds now, you might uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together. And here it says, until the harvest, right? There is a moment. And that's what we all want. We all want this moment where evil is going to be dealt with, right? And I think that this whole idea of Armageddon, that there's a battle that God is going to... Um, create a moment, a, a, a climax, a fight where God is going to end evil, we wonder, okay, why isn't it happening now? And why is the battle necessary? Well, one is there is an enemy who's planting evil seeds, seeds of lies and destruction and doubt in a God of love, things that make us wonder if God is good. And so we need to see that that grows to its fruition, right? We need to see the results of that. And then God needs to put an end to it. Right? That's the second coming. That's Jesus coming and making an end of all things. That's Jesus being the judge. That's Jesus uh, giving us new bodies. All of these things are Christian theology things, right? But the point of them is that God makes an end of sin. He doesn't just let us self-destruct for eternity, right? And this is important. And then it says, at that time, I will tell the harvesters, right? There's a harvest. And it says, at that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, then gather the wheat into my barn. Look, there's this whole thing that God separates the just and the unjust, the evil and the good from one another. With that, there's an amazing story in chapter 16 of Revelation, because that's actually where we hear the word Armageddon, right? In this battle, and, and that idea is brought up. It's interesting that it actually says in that story that... The ones who are destroyed, it's because they didn't have their garments on. And so the Christian idea is that Jesus covers us with his blood and that only those who are covered by the blood of Jesus will be saved. And well, okay, what does that mean? But one of the things that it definitely means is that Jesus covers us. When God looks at you and you're a Christian, he doesn't just see you. In fact, he primarily sees Jesus Paul said it this way, which and Paul wrote a lot of the books in the New Testament. He says, it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live by faith in him. So the way I like to say it is that 
when you become a Christian, your only job is to die to self. And so, as we mentioned before, there's this selfishness, there's this human tendency to be super evil. And if, you, if you've ever met a two-year-old, right, they can be cute sometimes, but man, they are, ooh, um, it's rough. And then they learn to love. They learn to be patient and kind. And some of them are more naturally this way and some of them are not. But ultimately, all of them are selfish without a changed heart. All humans are selfish without a changed heart. And so this reality is that Jesus covers us with his garments, with his robe, so that when we stand before God, it's not my dirty clothing. It's not my dirty self that that God sees. Rather, it's Jesus who stands in front of me and he sees my account. And so that life that I now live, I live by faith. When I get to heaven, I'm going to be living the life, just my life, just as Jesus would have lived my life with love and compassion and truth and power, right? There's going to be a different way of living than before I was converted. And this conversion is what gives us the power to live a different life. You see, Armageddon, the whole point of Armageddon of this battle, of this destruction, is so that evil can be dealt with. That, man, the suffering of children and the starvation in the world and rape and murder and slavery, all of these things need to be destroyed. They themselves, like the very concept of rape and murder and anybody who holds on to those types of things has to be destroyed because that that's no place, that has no place in heaven. I wouldn't want to live in a heaven where that was allowed. Most of us are really not sure we want to live on an earth where that is currently allowed. But that's part of this process that God is going through with humanity because we chose sin. And there's only one way to get rid of the wheat, uh, the weeds, and that is to burn them. So he's, he's working. He's calling us. He's asking us to be changed so that we can have a heart of Christ, so that we can be part of the wheat instead of part of the weeds. To me, the question about this is, okay, what does it matter that God has an Armageddon? When you look around the world and you're a reasonable person, you say, okay, this isn't good. One thing that gives me help when I ask this question is to realize this is not the eternal plan, right? This is a short-lived symptom of humanity's choice to sin. And God is dealing with that. And there are reasons for the process and the timing, okay? But, and we can talk about that another time, or you can ask here. But the ultimate reality is that suffering will end one day. God will put an end to it. And it's him initiating this war. He's not allowing sin to and Satan to rampage the world for all of eternity. He will make an end. Another part of this, as we talked about with, with what Jesus was saying, that things may get worse before they get better but that God is not surprised by this. Part of the struggle is that we assume when we kind of have a shallow understanding of what God's word says, we kind of assume that Jesus would have just made an end of things and that God would have just gotten rid of things. And well, why aren't they getting better? They should have gotten better, but they're not going to get better. Not yet. They're going to get worse. And in fact, Jesus prophesied they would get worse. It's because you need to see the, the weeds and the wheat grow together, and then there will be an end to those things. And then another important aspect is that God tells us to not fear 365, arguably, maybe more times in the Bible, in this context of the end and of suffering and difficulty. Whenever God's people are in 
in danger and in turmoil, he tells them, do not fear. Because he has a plan, because he has an answer to this struggling, to this suffering. And those who ask questions about this are being reasonable. And that's why God gave us his word, right? The Bible is a blessing because when you read it in context and you understand that this is God working with broken people to bring about an end where there is no more sin, when you realize that, man, it gives you, okay, these words and Jesus' words were said for a reason. And that reason is to help me know that although, yes, there is suffering today because of the choices of humanity, God will make an end of it. Sin will be destroyed. And it is only because of God's patience that he's not doing that today. Right? I mean, think about it this way, right? Like, I'm not a perfect person. And I before I knew Jesus, I had no hope of becoming a perfect person on my own. That wasn't going to happen or even more loving, or more kind, or in any way worthy of eternity. I was selfish. I did horrible things to people. I was selfish to people, right? And and the truth is, love in eternity needs to be a perfect love. Otherwise, sin will multiply and destroy hearts and lives for eternity. No, God wants something different. And so he sent his son so that we can be changed and be made new. And until the second coming, God is showing the difference between a person who follows love and grace and goodness and a person who follows selfishness and pride and arrogance. God has a plan. And I pray that you can think about those things in a way that helps you take your next step towards what is good and holy and full of love. And that is Jesus Christ. So I know we kind of covered a lot. Uh, Do you have any questions? Are there any thoughts that you had? Anything I might have missed that you think is important? Be sure to comment it down below or uh, look at the description because we might cover more information like this in our future episodes. So be sure to keep listening. and, And as you learn to apply these things to your daily life, you will become grace taught. You'll start thinking like a God of love and goodness thinks, and it'll change your whole life. I pray that for you and for your family. God bless you.